I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. For, the, uh, for our Advent season, we're going to part from our study in the book of James. We'll pick that back up in January. Um, and then come mid-February, we're going to start a new series on the gospel and the, light of, in the, in the life of David. Um, but for the month of December, we're going to look at the first two chapters um, as the Chris, of the Christmas story told from the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll begin reading in Matthew 1, verse 1, and I'll just go ahead and tell you now that there's a lot of hard names, and there's no way I will get through this without mispronouncing some of them. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashan. And Nashan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetil, and Shetil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would uh, be present. That we would hear from you in this place. Your scriptures testify of you and you speak through them to us. Lord, no one needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you. And so I pray now in this moment that my words would fall to the ground. 
blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain. May they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I asked about five different people to read that text tonight, and they all refused. Um, and I, I want you to resist the urge to leave um, right now. After, after reading that and hearing that, I'm sure you know, that was about as exciting as reading through a phone book. Uh, growing up, I, I've heard one sermon on the genealogies all the way through, and that was by Reverend Lovejoy on the Simpsons uh, cartoon. And it was just completely mocking Christianity in doing so. Um, so that, that doesn't count. Um, this is not how modern people would begin a biography. Um, because family's just not that important to us. Uh, how many of you here, and I'm just curious, can name the first names of all of your grandparents? In your head, can, you, can, you can think of them. How about your great-grandparents? The first names of all your great-grandparents. All right, we've got two. Two people. All right, maybe three. Y'all are now thinking, you're like, well, you know, I don't know. Genealogies, family names just aren't that important to us. We only have to go back a few generations, and we don't even remember the names of our great-grandparents. But it was much different in a first-century Jewish culture. A lot of them would have their entire genealogies memorized. They were, they were of huge importance to them. Um, and, and so we don't, need to, we don't need to look at this genealogy the way that we would typically look at it. We need to see it through the eyes of somebody from the first century in which this is, in many ways, the highlight of Matthew. As they get to see, really, this parade of names coming forward, and they're waiting to see who comes last in this. It's important that the story of Jesus begins this way with these genealogies. It doesn't begin with, once upon a time, there was a man named Jesus. But, but you see here, this is a real story anchored in real time with real people with, with really deep history and roots. This story has historical roots that trace back 2,000 years. And this tells us something else that's really crucial about the gospel. It doesn't begin with, let me tell you how you need to live your life. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is primarily news. It's primarily telling us about something that happened in history. It's, it's not primarily telling you about how you need to live a better life, all the things that you need to do. It's, it's about, let me tell you a real historical event about a real person and something that he has done. And what he has done changes everything. Now, one of the things that um, not just religious historians, but secular historians have also noted about this is that it's a really unusual genealogy when compared to other great figures of the time. It's just done a lot differently. Now, let me explain. In the first century, a genealogy is kind of like, like a person's resume. All right? It's the person's resume. Um, and just like then, like they, do, like they do now, people lie on their resumes okay, in order to get the job. They want to 
present themselves in the best possible light. And so, you know, you can say I graduated with a 4.0 GPA because nobody's going to go back and check your GPA. And so a lot of people lie on their resumes and they say things like that. And, you know, famous people over the years have been busted from that. I think of uh, the former coach of Notre Dame, you know, George O'Leary, lied on his resume. You know, said he uh, played football at New York University, said he got his master's there, and actually he did neither. He just attended one class. And, and when that came out, he lost his job. You know, the former director of FEMA, you know, I think during the Bush days, he, he had to step down because he lied on his resume. People do it all the time. Um, a, a lot of times what people do is they don't technically lie on the resume, they just... They leave out the events that they would not want a future employer to know about. And so if you graduated with a 2.0, you don't mention that. You just say, I graduated from so-and-so university. After all, GPA isn't that important. Why do I need to, to give that information? Or if you got fired from a, from a job before because of negligence or something like that, you're just not going to list that person as a reference. You're not going to really mention that you ever worked there. Because you want to present your, your past as being as glorious as possible. People do that now. People did that then. But you don't find that here. One of Jesus' contemporaries, King Herod, tried to lie on his resume. Uh, King Herod, um, his parents were Edomites. Um, Basically, that means they were not Israelites. And so Herod, although he was king of the Jews, he wasn't really Jewish. And so he tried to doctor up his genealogy so it would present that he was Jewish. The problem was, well, everybody really knew his parents, and so it was hard to doctor it up. And so he tried to burn everybody's genealogies. Um, and so he was able to get almost all of his rivals to the throne, all of their genealogies, and he burned them all. So at least they would all be on equal ground when looking at their resume to who qualifies for the throne. And we'll look at some of Herod's insecurities um, in the chapters ahead. But what is so fascinating here, and as I mentioned, both secular and religious historians have noted this, is Matthew does not do this with Jesus' resume. He doesn't do it with his genealogy. It's Obvious that even though Matthew leaves out some names, and he does that because of length and he wants to structure things a certain way, he doesn't leave out the bad people. He puts in and he is sure to include the really kind of shady, seedy people all throughout Jesus' genealogy. And it's fascinating that he does this. Names that you would think there is no way I would ever include in my history, in my past, Matthew puts to the forefront and says, look, this is who Jesus uh, is descended from. It would be like, you know, mentioning that you graduated with a 2.0 from Burtsdale Community College. I hope there's not a Burtsdale. And if there is, I hope you're not here. Uh, it's like you mentioning you, you graduated from there with a 2.0 and you failed to mention in your resume that you also went to Harvard. It's like, you don't do that. That's what Matthew does when he lists Jesus' genealogy. 
He includes murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, liars, people just full of violence. There, there's a few good people here. You know, you look at, look at verse 10, where you find Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a really good, really godly king. That's great. But then you look right after Hezekiah, and it says he's the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the most evil people to have ever lived. Uh, Manasseh worshipped pagan gods, um, and he actually burned his sons as an offering to pagan gods. It's one of Jesus' ancestors. It's crazy when you see all of the sinners, all of these shady people being listed here. And there's a couple of things, there's a couple of reasons why I think Matthew wants to pull this out and things he wants us to see. One is he wants us to rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. When we're bogged down in a time of suffering or in despair and we can't see any hope, it looks like God has lost complete control, that God doesn't have a plan. What this reminds us is we need to zoom back. We need to take the lens back and look at the big picture. And you can see that in horrible situations, in good situations, with ungodly kings, with godly kings, when there's famine, when there's feast, when there's a peaceful kingdom, when they're in exile, you see God's plan, His purpose being established through it all. If you just take a step back, God's purpose was never in doubt. And so when, when you're going through this period of suffering, just remind yourself, like, if I were to get God's point of view on this, I could see the whole plan. He is so sovereign that um, when looking at the Christmas story, if you look at it through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that God puts it on the heart of an emperor to call for an emperor empire-wide census, which is going to cost tons of money, involve thousands upon thousands of people. People are going to have to move all over the empire. This was a huge undertaking, but God caused that to happen just to move a poor little couple, Jewish couple, from point A to point B because he needed Joseph and Mary and Bethlehem. And when I think of that, I'm astounded Huge world event happening here. And all just to move a little couple from point A to point B. And so, and so when I think of that, I'm like, wow, God, I have no idea what you're doing in all these world events, what, what's happening in my life, but I can trust this. There is a plan. And we see that here. One of the most astonishing things about this genealogy is the fact that there are four women, five if you count Mary, but there's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, and there's the wife of Uriah. Four women. What's extraordinary about this is women had no legal rights in the first century. They hardly had any rights at all. Um, women were thought of more as possessions than they were as people in this day. That's why Jewish men, you know, would wake up and first thing they would pray is, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave. Yet here, 
Matthew goes out of his way to not only list women, but Gentile women. Not just Gentile women, but three of these four women have, um, we'll just say, quite a past. So why mention these four women? Um, if, if, G, if Matthew just wanted to list women in Jesus' genealogy, he could have listed anybody. Why these four here? It's obvious he's trying, he's trying to draw our attention in because he also includes the husband of all of them. But then he says, and by Tamar, and by Rahab, and by Ruth. He, he's, he pulls in them as well. It's like he wants us to look at their stories. That's the reason he is listing these four women. Is he's saying, as you go through the genealogy of Jesus, take time to look in at those four stories. And so let's do that. Let's look at all four women beginning with Tamar. Uh, Tamar is found in Genesis 38. Unusual story, to say the least. It, uh, the story of Joseph begins in chapter 37. We all love the narrative of Joseph. It goes from chapter 37 to chapter 50 of Genesis. But right after Joseph is introduced, you have this bizarre story about Tamar. And then in chapter 39, Joseph picks back up and finishes the book of Genesis. And a lot of commentators are like, why the heck is there this random, bizarre story about Tamar in the middle of Genesis? Matthew tells us why. It's because Christ will be descended from this person. Jesus will be descended from this person. And so we need to look at her story. The story is this. Judah, who is one of the twelve sons of Jacob, he leaves his family, he leaves his faith, and he goes away and he's living with you know, people who don't believe in the same God that he believes in. He has two sons, uh, Er and Onan. It's the only time you're ever going to find this. These sons were so wicked, it says that God just killed them. <laughs> they were so wicked, it says, and the Lord took their life. Um, so these have to be some pretty bad kids, all right, who, who come from Jacob or from Judah. Now, Er had married Tamar. And after her husband had been killed for being so wicked, Tamar is just kind of, you know, she's, she's still in Judah's family now. And uh, she's like, well, can you give me another son? Can, can I get married? And, and I don't know if he was just thinking, well, I saw what happened after my last son married you. Or if he's like, I don't know what it is. But he hates Tamar. Hates her. Doesn't want anything to do with her. And he says, okay, I'll find you a husband. But he never gives her a husband. He doesn't even like to look at her. And so she's thinking, what can I do? What, what can I? Well, she disguises herself as a prostitute. And so when Judah is going down to um, shear sheep, he sees this prostitute and he sleeps with her and they have a child together. And so Tamar sleeps with her father-in-law and they have a child. And that child, you know, is listed here. They actually have twins, Perez and Zerah. And those are the ones in the genealogy of Jesus. So there you go. There, there's one of Jesus' ancestors right, right there. It, um, when I picture the lineage of Jesus, the first image that comes to my mind is Jerry Springer. I'm like, these people belong 
on Jerry Springer. It's, it's the type of people that, that would be called Ford, you know, the sleeping with your father-in-law or something like that, and, and yet they're highlighted. Let's look at Rahab. Now, Rahab didn't have to disguise herself as a prostitute because she was a prostitute. Um, that, that was her profession. And if you remember the story in Joshua 2, the Israelites are about to invade the city of Jericho, and so they send in a couple of spies The spies don't go to stay in a hotel. The spies go to a prostitute's home, which says a lot about the character of the spies. But somehow in that connection in this uh, this home of this prostitute, she decides to hide them. She decides to lie for them. And she helps them to escape when the officials of Jericho are going around looking for them. As a result, she is saved when Jericho is destroyed. And then she becomes one of the people here in this genealogy. A former prostitute. Look at Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Um, Here's another story that will never be in any children's Bible. Um, Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Remember, uh, you had Abraham's nephew, Lot. Well... After Sodom and Gomorrah and God destroyed the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, he fled, and he lived in a cave with his two daughters who really wanted kids. Um, But they lived in a cave. I don't know. They didn't get out much. They didn't meet other people. They thought, you know, uh, our our best hope of having a child is to get our dad drunk and sleep with him. So that's what they did, and they both had kids. Their descendants were the Moabites coming from an incestuous relationship with their father. They were looked so down upon by the Israelites. Deuteronomy 23 says this, No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It's pretty strong. If you're a Moabite, you can never go to the temple ever to worship. <coughs> Ruth is a Moabite. She's a complete outsider. Not just an outsider because of her ethnicity, but she was poor, she was powerless, she was a widow. You can't get in any more of a hopeless situation than her. She is in desperate need of a redeemer in which Boaz comes and redeems her and brings her into the covenant family. It's a beautiful story of the gospel. Look at the wife of Uriah. This is the last of the women listed, not counting Mary. The wife of Uriah. Interestingly, that. Matthew doesn't give her name. We, we all know who this is. This is Bathsheba. This is Bathsheba, but he doesn't say Bathsheba. He says the wife, not former wife, but the current wife, is how he puts it, of Uriah, the Hittite. I mean, that's, that's who we know him as. The reason that he does this is because he wants to highlight that relationship. It says, when you think of this story, you know what? I want you to think of the adulterous relationship that David had. He stole somebody's wife. And he 
killed her husband. And when he mentions Uriah's wife, you're thinking of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was one of David's most loyal friends. He was one of his closest allies, and David betrayed and killed him. And that's what Matthew wants you to think of here. He's like, David took one of his best friend's wife and then sent his best friend off to go get killed. Jesus' line comes through this betrayal and murder in either adultery or rape. I mean, do you see how strange it is that Matthew would mention this? I mean, look at verse, look at verse 6 here. When you have, you know, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father, father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Now, it'd be so much easier to just to like leave out that the wife of Uriah. And then you just have... Father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of. I mean, it would just be so easy. It would flow a lot more natural. But he wants to be sure to bring that in. He's pointing to this sin. Now, let me tell you what. This is one of the highlights, actually, of this genealogy, because David is central in this. Look at verse 1. We have the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Being called the son of David is being called the Messiah. You know, when you had blind man Bartimaeus crying out on the side of the road when Jesus walked by, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Son of David. And people kept saying, be quiet, be quiet. Why? Because they recognized that he was calling Christ the Messiah. To be called the son of David was to be called the king. There was no greater honor than that. And the genealogies are kind of structured around this. I, I really hope I don't put you to sleep with this. Uh, I, was, I didn't know if I do numerology or not, but there's a lot of little numerology in here. Uh, the genealogies are broken up into sections of 14, you know, 14 and 14 and 14. Well, David is the 14th person mentioned, uh, showing that he's like the, the highlight of this. The, the numerology of David's name, every Hebrew letter in the alphabet has a different number ascribed to it, adds up to the number 14. And so you have like his, his numerology is 14. He is the 14th person listed. He is at the uh, mentioned at the very first. And so we are leading up into this David. David, he's the son of David. So why highlight this? And the reason it's being highlighted is the same reason that all the other genealogies are being highlighted. All the other people in the genealogies are being highlighted. It wants to show you that when we say that the Word of God became flesh, we mean the Word of God really became flesh. Alright? Not flesh at a distance, but flesh embedded in all of our dysfunctional families, all of our hideous sins. He was really flesh. And he had to be immersed in this flesh if he was ever going to save flesh. You know when you go to a family reunion, uh, and I quit going a long time ago because I, 
My family drove me crazy at these things. But there's always the black sheep of the family, black sheeps of the family that are out there. You know, the ones that when they walk into the room, everybody talks in hushed tones. You, know, you just have to be quiet. I remember family reunions, not even knowing what a person did. Just, just whenever they talked about this person, it was always in hushed tones. They did something bad. You know, it, maybe it's like, you know, Uncle Bob, the, the serial adulterer, or, you know, Cousin Sue, the just floozy. She's, she's completely unaware that everybody rolls her eyes behind her back every time she says something. And there, there's those people. Those people are in Jesus' genealogy, and you know what? He's different than me. Because Jesus is not ashamed to call them His own. He's not. He says, that's right. That's my family. I come from a long line of sinners. And I'm not ashamed to call them my own. You see that later in Jesus' baptism. When he gets into baptism, did he need to be baptized for his sin? Not at all. But he says, permit this. It is necessary. Why? Because Jesus, once again, is getting in line with sinners. The Word is becoming flesh. And Jesus is saying, there is no family that I cannot redeem. None. Jesus, before Him, prostitutes, kings, are equals. Nobody stands on a pedestal before Him. He sees us all as sinners. And He's come to put an end to it and to redeem us. A number of years ago when Caroline, who's now 10, she was, she was a baby, we were at Lauren's family's house and uh, arguing just broke out around the uh, dining room table. This was a common experience. And so there was lots of yelling. There's lots of extremely hurtful things being said. Um, and it just all kind of just, it erupted. And you could see in this moment all the ugliness that is in her, her family was coming out. And Lauren left, and she went to her old room. And I'm trying to, to calm things down, and it just kept escalating, and it, it, things would not calm down. And so after a couple of hours, I went back, and Lauren was in her old, old room, and she was holding Caroline, and she was crying, and she was just rocking Caroline. She was just rocking Caroline. And, uh, and we sat down together, and we prayed, and we said, Caroline will never know this, ever. All this junk ends here. It stops. All that generational sin that has been a part of her family, all that stuff, we're like, it's going to break here. And we had one of the, the best prayer times that we have had as a couple, praying in her old room after that. And of course, we were only partially right, because Lauren and I are still sinful people, and we still have hurt Caroline plenty. But that's what Jesus does here in full. This is Jesus' family. It's all the arguing. It's all the cheats, all the adulterers, all the murderers. And, and he's there. And then Jesus comes and he says, this all ends here. I can redeem it all. And he does. He doesn't run away from his past. 
He takes it on to the cross. And He deals with our sin forever. Let me just say, for those of you who in the weeks ahead will be going home to dysfunctional families, and every family is dysfunctional, um, and some of you might be dreading some moments, just hear this, Christ can redeem any family. He can. He took on all of that and he put it on the cross. Pray with me. Our Father, we are so thankful that we are not here looking at a fairy tale with a moral. That this story does not begin with once upon a time. That I'm not up here trying to give life lessons to how we could become better people. God, we're broken. We're sinful. And that would do us no good. I am thankful that what we just read here is a real event, a real person. The gospel is good news. A Jesus who came from a long line of sinners broke the power of sin. And we want to remember that during this Advent season. Thank you that in Jesus, all of that stopped there. And he gives us new life and new hearts. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.